welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. This is our seventh episode in our weekly journal clubs looking at all the latest research into COVID-19. And you may be sad to hear that this is the last time we'll bring you a weekly update. But don't despair. We are going to keep bringing you more journal clubs, but perhaps on a less frequent basis and including, dare I say it, non-COVID-19 papers. If you've enjoyed this series, please let us know what you've liked about it and how we could improve and what you'd like to see in the future. And hopefully this will very much become part of our regular St Emlyn's output. As we come to the end of this regular series, special thanks should go to Rick Boddy, who's convened all of the panels and organised all of those webinars that people have enjoyed. Special thanks also to Izzy Carley, who's meticulously gone through and managed to edit the webinars down into these podcasts that you've been listening to over the last few months. And with that, all I'll remind you is to like and subscribe, as every podcaster will, and I'll hand over to Rick. This morning, we've got another treat for you. Some great papers, fantastic faculty. Uh, let's get started because we've got a lot to cover. First of all, I'll introduce you to the faculty that we've got today. If you've joined our previous episodes, you'll be familiar with most of the people. So we've got myself, I'm a Professor of Emergency Medicine in Manchester, Simon Carley, Professor of Emergency Medicine, Anissa Jaffar, Clinical Lecturer in Emergency Medicine, Charlie Reynard, Doctoral Fellow in Emergency Medicine, Paul Clapper, Professor of Medical Virology, Pam Barley who's also a professor of medical virology, Ellie Hothersall, who is a consultant in public health and also an academic at Dundee University. And today we've got a special guest, Kellyanne Janssens, who is an emergency physician from Ireland and my colleague on the USAM Research Committee. I think we've been on the research committee together for the last four years, I think, Kelly. So welcome to the Journal Club. Kelly, um, thanks a lot for taking the time. Uh, today, we've got a deep dive, uh, the ACTT1 trial, which is an RCT of remdesivir. A lot of controversy surrounding this, and we're going to hopefully clear some of that up. And then we've got five rapid reviews covering a load of really important topics, should the children go back to school. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We've got other stuff on hydroxychloroquine. There's some real gems in there. So we'll move on, without further ado, to our first trial. And this week... And Nisa is going to do the ACTT1 trial. Thanks, Rick. Okay, so this will be hopefully quite an interesting one because it's kind of got a little bit of a positive message coming out, which is kind of unusual for the stuff that we've been presenting for the past few weeks. So remdesivir originally created, I believe, with an intention to, to help treat hepatitis and then kind of popped its head up around Ebola, MERS, hasn't yet found a home. And so why not um, COVID-19 come along? Let, let's see if it, it will do anything. So this is a double blind randomized placebo controlled trial of um, intravenous remdesivir. And it was primarily targeted at obviously adult patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19. who had evidence of low respiratory tract involvement, which I'll talk a bit more about later. They were given either 10 days of treatment with the remdesivir or with placebo. And the primary outcome, which is stated in the abstract, um, was time to recovery, um, which is considered to be either discharge from hospital or hosp- hospitalisation for purely for infection control purposes only. So reaching a state of recovery. Initially, there were 1,063 randomised um, in a one-to-one ratio. The headline outcome, uh, which has been spread everywhere, is that the medium time to recover in the remdesivir group was 11 days versus 15 days in the placebo. So that's kind of your headline. So it's worth pointing out as we go into a little bit more of the detail, um, and this is something I hadn't picked up, but Rick pointed out this morning, was the objective here, um, if we read, was, the, was to evaluate the clinical efficacy and safety of the putative investigational therapeutic agents. I can't go all the way down there, but essentially it was focusing on a phase three trial and the original study protocol had been focusing at phase two so that's something we need to bear in mind so there's been a lot of shifting around within this study and that might affect the way we interpret some of the results and if we move on to looking at the patients a little bit more detail so adults with proven COVID-19 on PCR any duration of illness but we found I think we look in the detail that I think the median time was nine days since symptoms have actually started, and that was overall within the whole of the trial population. They included patients with evidence of low respiratory tract infection, so that's radiological infiltrates or um, clinical findings, they said rails, which is a, an interesting word to use, hypoxia or um, a need for mechanical ventilation. 
So the treatment arm was remdesivir um, intravenous, 200 milligrams initially, and then 100 milligrams once a day for 10 days. And then the placebo, interesting because in some cases, normal saline was used. Um, and in other cases, there was more effort to follow the, the full sort of blinding protocol. So that may affect how we interpret the, the results. So primary outcomes. So this time to recovery, the way that the patients were sort of categorized was on a scale of one to eight, eight being dead and one being not hospitalized with no limitation of activity and then everything in between. The idea was that you would start off either um, in, obviously not in the number eight group because you're not alive, but if you were severely unwell, so requiring ECMO or mechanical ventilation, you'd be in group seven. If you were slightly less unwell, you'd be having in group six, uh, non-invasive ventilation or use of high flow oxygen. If you were then in group five, you're hospitalized requiring any kind of supplemental oxygen. Group four, not requiring oxygen, but requiring ongoing medical care um, for COVID-19 related or other medical conditions. And that's where it becomes a little bit fuzzy because then when you hop down to category number three, You don't require supplemental oxygen and you don't require ongoing medical care. You're just in hospital for infection control reasons. So that's considered to be a a recovered area. But then stepping down to number two, you're not hospitalized. You've got limited activities and you require home oxygen. So between two and three, you could argue which one is the more severe group. Um, And even kind of comparing, so hopping between maybe the group two and group four so that's worth a little bit of a look but it's useful because it allows for some uniformity so the baseline characteristics of the groups by and large they were well matched but there was one area which did highlight to me was the the group seven is that there were were a higher number um, of patients in the in the most severe category in the placebo group and it's not an enormous amount uh, of a difference but it is a difference they did control for it, but we, again, we just have to keep that in mind if we go deeper into the numbers. So the key results, as I've alluded to, so the, the remdesivir group, 11 days to recovery, uh, the placebo group, 15 days to recovery. There were a few things to point out just about the, the outcome, because originally the primary outcome was planned to be 15 days, but this was modified during the trial because of information, uh, the um, statisticians who actually were blinded to any of the treatment outcomes or any of the information about outcome, but it was in response to new information about the disease. So that did change probably didn't didn't make it a, an enormous amount of difference to the outcome of the trial itself but it is again something we have to to keep in mind just in terms of trial process the other thing 14 day mortality which is um an, an interesting choice and I'm, I'm not fully sure we know why it was kept at 14 days but if we look at it in the remdesivir group it's just around seven percent and in the placebo group it's around 12 percent and so you can look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, which I won't go into in great detail, but you can see there the placebo group in red and the remdesivir group in blue. And if you look at the overall graph, the overall group in A, you can clearly see the recovery being much more prominent than in the placebo group. And if you, again, look at the other graphs split out between the different layers of severity, so Patients not receiving oxygen, again, remdesivir on top. Patients receiving oxygen, remdesivir on top. In the slightly more severe group, patients receiving high-flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, there is a signal there, but it's slightly less prominent. So this is the group who were the most severe, so the the Category 7 group. And interestingly here, if you look at the the overall, it isn't quite as clear-cut in terms of benefit of remdesivir. And actually, your placebo almost hinting to appear to be more of benefit on that curve itself. But this is a breakdown of the subgroups. And what is quite clear, again, if we look at that category seven group, and it makes it clear again that we haven't necessarily been demonstrated benefit of remdesivir there, but everything else is very much shifted to show benefit of remdesivir, but not so much in the Asian patients, which is probably something we ought to think about considering in our population, particularly in the UK, we're seeing um, the, the, the impact of COVID-19 in a more severe way on Asian patients. A couple of things to think about really uh, is, is comparison to the, the Lancet paper that came out uh, from a trial in China, 
The results are in keeping with that. Now, the, the Lancet paper didn't find a, a significant benefit of remdesivir, but certainly the numbers are pointing in that direction. So this is a good signal. It isn't perfect. No trial is perfect. But certainly there are promising indications here if they are only perhaps a minor improvement. And this was a really controversial um, trial before it was published because we previously appraised a paper looking at remdesivir from China. And on the same day as that was published, uh, there was a statement from Gilead that this particular trial had been positive. So we've been waiting eagerly to find out what made it so positive. And you've shown that, you know, there are a few areas that have caused a bit of controversy, this shift in the primary outcome, the difference between phase two and phase three and so on. So really interesting, but it is a positive trial of a new treatment for COVID-19. So should we all get excited about remdesivir? And does it mean now that we should be giving remdesivir to our patients? Or are any of those concerns about the controversy going to be too much for us to adopt this as, as a new treatment? I think it's, it's difficult to ignore it. And yet it would be good to see more evidence. And also, I think we probably need to dig a little bit more into the adverse events. There were adverse events in both groups. They were kind of pretty much equal. But actually finding out what those adverse events were would be useful. And also looking at this, this more severe group and trying to understand a little bit more about what, what went on there. I suppose the question is, if it was me or one of my members, of, one of the members of my family who was unwell with COVID nineteen and, and sort of seriously unwell, would I want them to have remdesivir? Probably. If it made a little bit of a difference, then <laughs> that, that's the difficulty, isn't it? You're hanging on a bit of a difference, anything to make a bit of a difference when you're in that sort of severe category. I'm not sure yet, um, Rick, on this one. I think there are some concerns about how the trial was conducted, and actually, if you look at the data, what's really important here is to me is survival. You know, this is a this is a fatal disease which kills people, and they haven't demonstrated a difference as yet. I mean, that it may be that with more data coming through and with further follow up of the patients, because they, they didn't have mortality data on all the patients because they hadn't been in the trial that long, so that may come. But actually, the potential here is what they're suggesting is that there's a group of patients who are not that unwell who are the most likely to benefit from this by getting better a bit quicker. Now that's important, but in the big picture it's not the most important about a disease which kills hundreds of thousands of people. That, that's my feeling at the moment. So I think there is potentially a signal here, but I thought before we start weighing in with this on very large numbers of patients um, with potential for significant adverse events, as Anissa says, then I think we need to know a little bit more about that mortality data and where the benefits are. Ellie, you're nodding your head, which I, always, I think is a good sign. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you completely, Simon. And I think that some of those error bars are very, very wide. And some of those error bars are wide even in large groups of patients, which suggests a wild amount of variation, which we might think was explained more about variation within trial methodology than within actual outcomes, uh, if you see what I mean. I'm very worried about a set of results which don't show the same direction within mortality and morbidity impact. It seems a bit strange imagine saying to a patient it's not going to save your life but if you're going to live anyway you might get better quicker I, I think that's a difficult sell and I think we have to remember that this is a very expensive new intervention without a lot of other safety data behind it it feels a little bit close to something must be done this is something so I'd like to say a word in defense of some of the things that have been said about the trial the change in the primary outcome has been criticized in social media quite a bit. And they, they had ordinal ANISA described. And originally, I think they were looking to find a, a, a shift, a positive shift in your ordinal scale. And later, I think they dichotomized it, basically either hospitalized or not hospitalized. If they had continued to use their original primary outcome, they would have still shown a significant difference. So that comes out in their defense. The thing that concerned me was that this is a preliminary report. A quarter of the patients hadn't been followed up to 29 days, yet the primary outcome was time to recovery at 29 days. Now, that 25% of patients who are yet to reach the end of their episode could really swing the findings of this trial. And I, I understand that there's a huge rush to get findings out into practice so that we can change our patients' care at the, the earliest opportunity when new treatments are beneficial. But I don't quite understand why there was this much of a rush. I mean, data monitoring committees can end a trial early when they find a huge effect or a massive patient safety effect or a massive mortality effect. And that, that is written into the protocols for these trials and for other trials that we've been involved in. But I didn't think that the difference here was so enormous that that would 
be at the level where normally a data monitoring committee would suggest ending the trial early? I mean, they haven't ended the trial early, sorry, but releasing the data early. Uh, I found it quite difficult to follow that it was almost like doing the hokey-cokey, the number of patients that were in the analysis and then out of the analysis. What's going to happen is we're going to accumulate with time the full results of the trial. Would we expect there to be a, an effect of remesivir in the late stages of severe illness when probably it's an immunopathological event that's causing the severe disease, that actually it would have its effect earlier in the disease? And the, the data sort of shows that, that if you start treatment early, do you alter the progression through to very severe disease? That would be the interesting thing to look at, I think. Yeah, and uh, it probably was, can't at the moment. The, the, the mechanism of action of remdesivir is a, is a broad spectrum antiviral, um, isn't it? And it, it, so it, it's a nucleotide analogue and, and interferes with the way that the virus uh, is able to replicate its RNA. So, you know, you, you could expect, you know, in vitro it works very well. It does stop coronaviruses and lots of other viruses from replicating but you can imagine that you know, in the early stages of the illness, if it's having some effect in that way, then it will have an effect. But later on, when there's all sorts of other things going on in the, in the human, it's not probably going to have very much effect. So that's been a really interesting critical appraisal. We'd better move on in the interest of time. But you know what? I think it would be really interesting to finish this one off with a quick poll of the panellists. Would you give this to your next patient with, with COVID-19 based on these findings and what we know? So I'm going to start it off and I'm going to say, yes, I would but I really regret the fact that they didn't give us full data at 29 day follow-up because I'd, I'd have preferred to have that. Sort of 50-50. Well, luckily I don't ever have to make that patient-facing decision, but at the moment, in the absence of anything else, probably, yeah. I think if I was in category maybe five, yeah. Five, five, five or six, yeah. Okay, but not if you ventilated. Well, to be fair, I'd probably throw anything then, wouldn't you? So <laughs> maybe then too. The answer is probably it depends, but uh, the proper public health answer is yes, if it was part of a randomised controlled trial. I completely agree with Ellie. Absolutely. I'd be very happy to be enrolled in any trial um, involving this, but I wouldn't give it as a routine. I agree with Simon Ellie. I think as part of an RCT, I would take it. But I think this is one trial in a forest of other trials that are negative and I'd want to see more evidence. Okay. And Kelly? I like Paul's comment about I'd, if by the time I ha- I'd have to make that decision, I would hope that the the patterns would accumulate more with time. If we had to decide today, I'd probably go to. So we're generally on the fence. A few people are saying they would, they, we would give it, and a, a couple of us only in the context of an RCT. I think that's been helpful. Hopefully that will inform your practice because this is something that will come up. Let's move on to our rapid fire round. And we're going to talk about hydroxychloroquine, another controversial treatment that Donald Trump himself is apparently taking. So, Charlie, over to you. So, this was a retrospective database review, one of the bigger ones. It covered 671 hospitals, six continents, and reached 98,000 patients. Their primary outcome was examining the association between treatment and mortality, specifically hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. They split patients into treatment groups and control groups. Control groups were patients who didn't have any of the described treatments. They found 81,000 patients in their control groups and just under 15,000 in the intervention groups, just under 15,000 who had hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without a macrolide. They did a COX analysis and looked at uh, the different treatments given and found that hydroxychloroquine alone had a hazard ratio of 1.34 for risk of death. They found that hydroxychloroquine with a macrolide had a worse hazard ratio at 1.45 for risk of death. They also, interestingly, um, confirmed some of the other predictors which have been hypothesized and shown in other papers, including ethnicity, with black and Hispanic ethnicities seeming to be associated with an increased risk of death. They interestingly found that Asian ethnicity was associated with a decreased risk of in-hospital mortality. This is a really interesting paper which has led to some um, changes in the way that uh, the World Health Organization has started talking about hydroxychloroquine, but it has some big limitations. Doing a retrospective database review to look at treatment effect is notoriously a bad methodological decision. This is some of the biggest data sets that we've seen, but the methodology isn't perfect. And there's this argument about any, is any data uh, better than bad data? It's, and that's for discussion in a minute. 
they tried to account for the fact that there might be some confounders, which is one of the main issues in retrospective database reviews, i.e., did the patient getting hydroxychloroquine, were they sicker? Did they have greater likelihood before taking the hydroxychloroquine of dying? They tried to do propensity matching using QSOFA and some other risk scores. But actually, those risk scoring systems have been shown to not be very accurate in COVID-19. So that propensity matching, whilst it showed that their results stood up, it may not have been as foolproof as they hoped. Different patients got different doses. So we're, you could argue we're comparing apples and oranges here, particularly after the phase 2B trial out of Brazil, which showed that high-dose hydroxychloroquine had a remarkable association with mortality to the extent that they stopped their trial early, and that was an RCT. So dosage is really important. It's not something they can particularly capture very well in this large retrospective database review. To be fair to the authors, they did come to these conclusions themselves, really, in their discussion and limitations section. And their conclusion, I think, is one that I can personally get behind, which is that hydroxychloroquine should be only used in an RCT because of the safety concerns. I think, for me, that's the take-home for this paper. It's big and there's power in data, but the methodology isn't perfect. And I think the conclusion is that, for now, hydroxychloroquine should be only used in randomised controlled trials. One of the most interesting things about this paper was that particularly high incidence of ventricular arrhythmias reported, 8.1% in the hydroxychloroquine group. If that's not evidence enough to convince you that actually this isn't a no-harm treatment, we shouldn't just be giving it out without evidence, I don't know what is. Simon, I'll come to you for a comment about this from an emergency medicine perspective. You're the principal investigator at our site for the recovery trial, and we're looking at hydroxychloroquine. Any insights from you as to experience with the drug so far? Well, interestingly, the, the World Health Organization has actually suggested that we should stop giving this, um, stop actually looking at this in trials. And there was some information that came out of the Recovery Trial Center in Oxford yesterday to say that actually, on the basis of this data, I don't think we can conclude that it doesn't work because of all the things that Charlie said. And I think it is entirely reasonable to continue to put this, this drug into randomized control trials. We've already recruited uh, several thousand patients into this in the UK, and we should have a fairly good indicator from a properly well-designed trial fairly soon, probably middle of June, late June. So I, I certainly think we should continue as long as it's within an RCT. Okay. And there are also some trials on the way looking at prophylaxis in healthcare workers, big trials. So far, the data on hydroxychloroquine are really not convincing a load of negative trials. If this is a pharma drug, I wonder if the big pharma companies would actually continue investing in the, in the drug development. The question is, as a healthcare worker, is there enough equipoise still to take part in those trials? I think yes, because, and it's, I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, is the one that we always think of with hydroxychloroquine, but what he's doing is he's taking it prophylactically. And we simply don't have data on that at all at the moment. So it may well be that this is a drug which works prophylactically and that Donald Trump may be proven right and I think it's entirely reasonable to do a trial of this drug in healthcare workers um, who are at high risk of exposure. That, that's my feeling. I'm sure other people might um, disagree. And I am aware that some people, when we've tried to randomize to the trial, have now declined this drug on the basis of what's been out in the BBC and in news outlets. So the landscape of recruitment is changing. And I think, I don't know, if I was a healthcare worker, which I am, yeah, I'd probably still sign up to this RCT. I'll sign up to any RCT, just for the record. Absolutely anything. I'm, I'm in for it. I think the dosing is really important here. And the prophylactic dosing, classically, that they're suggesting is a lower dose. And that phase two RCT, best quality trial we can imagine for treatment and effect, inferred that a lower dose actually might not be as bad. And it was the high dose one which really was inferring for majority of the risk. And it might be, but the effect we're seeing in this trial is primarily related to high dose hydroxychloroquine, which is affecting the whole group that they looked at. So a low dose might not be so bad. I think that's a really important point, Charlie. And of course, those are sick patients who are probably more likely to get ventricular arrhythmias at baseline, even without a high dose of hydroxychloroquine. So I think it's a heartening message that we should be participating in these RCTs. There is a question from Kyrie, uh, who pointed out that the Rheumatology Global Group of a registry of patients who've been on hydroxychloroquine for SLE, who've gone on to get COVID. And so is that a signal that it doesn't work prophylactically? I guess we won't know until we get the results of the big RCTs, is what we're saying from this. So uh, I guess our conclusion is it's still reasonable to do those RTTs. 
Um, but at the moment, certainly no evidence of efficacy with hydroxychloroquine and, cert- and plenty of potential for harm. So let's move on to our next paper, which is on in vitro diagnostics. This has hit the news in a big way recently. You'll see lots on antibody testing. Roche and uh, Abbott have had their antibody tests approved for use and now being used widely in the NHS. So this paper takes us through the testing landscape and asks how we should be best using tests to guide our pandemic response. So over to you, Paul. It's a lovely paper. The headline grabs you. And it's a very timely reminder to those in government planning testing because there's enormous political pressure to increase the rate of testing in the community to try and help speed us out of lockdown. It's a paper that as a biological scientist you would never normally read because it's uh, based in mathematics and of course we always shy away from mathematics and they, they help people like me who are dunces at maths by actually having a reminder about a basic statistical analysis of tests. One of the things that happens with testing is that we measure tests in terms of sensitivity and specificity. And we think we need tests of high sensitivity and and good specificity as well. And of course, the two parameters are slightly mutually exclusive because you can adjust within the test to either get high sensitivity or high specificity. You can't really get perfection in both. And the other problem that people always neglect is that the reliability, the overall reliability of testing depends on the prevalence of the disease that you're looking for in the population. When you have low prevalence, you end up with a test which has good specificity and sensitivity, actually producing more false positives than you are actually identifying true positives. And the situation as we move out of lockdown is that the prevalence of the disease in the population is dropping. And so when we apply these tests, we may be actually doing much more harm than good. And the modeling that is in the paper illustrates this beautifully for the PCR-based type of testing and shows that you must not, when you try and drive up the amount of testing, accept a reduction in sensitivity of the test, the PCR test. Because if you do that, you make things worse. You also need to think about targeted testing. In other words, when you're tracking and tracing, go for the patients who've actually got the disease. If you're trying to apply these tests across the whole population, you will end up with chaos. Another aspect that they cover in the paper is about antibody testing. Now, clearly, antibody testing, properly applied, is very, very useful. For example, it can tell us whether staff who are working in in high-risk situations have actually had the disease and whether there's a likelihood that they're going to catch the disease again. That would be a good use of the test. When you apply it in a population-based way, you have to have a test which has got very high specificity because otherwise what you might do is to wrongly categorise patients, persons within the population as having had the disease, release them out into the population and they are still susceptible. And that would actually increase the risk of a resurgence of disease within the population. The third element of the paper that they go on to is to look at different strategies for releasing lockdown. They show very clearly that if we had a sudden release of lockdown, that we would get whatever the testing that was done within the community, we would get between 18 and 20 million cases within 30 to 50 days of the the release from lockdown. And so they study the actual phased release and the effect of what this would have and very clearly show again that high sensitivity testing for for the disease and targeted application of that disease so you actually look in the population that are likely to be infected is the only way in which we're going to release sensibly from lockdown and it beautifully illustrates some of the dangers of too rapid a release of of, of lockdown as there is pressure to do of course i would recommend it as a highly recommended paper well worth a read it was really interesting to see the impact of the different test specificities on what might happen if we used antibody testing to guide our 
pandemic response and a low specificity test really could lead to a big second wave of cases. Ali, you want to come in on this one? I agree. I think it's a, a fantastic paper, highly recommended. And I've just made a note to myself, I'm doing some teaching for our fourth year students later this week, and I'm going to recommend that they all have a look at it. I think as a, an introduction to sensitivity and specificity and why we, we should care, it's, it's gold standard. It, it's absolutely brilliant. And I think it does. It makes a very powerful argument for the considerations we need for the different strategies which are currently being considered. I think my only criticism of it would be because it's a mathematical model. It's not based on real data. It's applying core principles to that. And, and I guess one of the things we've been learning through much of this entire pandemic is that sometimes what we think are core principles that have the key impacts don't turn out to have quite the importance or relevance that we thought they were going to. And, and we get thrown yet another curveball. I think this is going to, to many public health and public health related people are going to think of this as being a sort of series of endless curveballs when we, we come out the other end. And so the modeling's great. The principles underpinning it are great. I think there's just a, a danger that it's and it, it gets taken as being more of a prediction than it possibly can be. And just to, to kind of add the caveat that, that all models are wrong, some models are useful. Charlie, you and I have got an interest in this one because we, we've applied and been successful in getting funding for a study to evaluate the sensitivity and specificity of diagnostic tests. I guess this highlights the importance of doing that research. Completely. I think it highlights to me that implementing such testing too early can have clinical harm and it's not a harmless exercise if we um, go in too quickly and that we need to do a science-led approach just because we've got a shiny new test that's been validated in less than 100 people doesn't mean that we should necessarily be putting it into clinical practice straight away. It should be done in a scientific approach in a trial. They do make the beautiful point that in this new disease, what are we going to use as a gold standard with which we compare our tests? They show you how we normally compare tests in a two-by-two table. I came across the term which I thought was very apposite with this disease, that this is actually known, I didn't know this before, it's known as a confusion matrix. So I thought it was an elegant description of where we are with this. We're learning as we're going along because we haven't got a gold standard yet to judge these tests by. So we're feeling our way bit by bit trying to compare the latest test to the one that follows. And it, it's going to take some time to resolve. Simon is now looking at the diagnostic accuracy of emergency department findings, including for all those enthusiasts out there on ultra, of ultrasound, POCUS. Oh, everybody loves ultrasound, Rick. You know that. It's, it's, it's the answer to everything, I think. Well, maybe. This is a nice little study published in Annals of Emergency Medicine. It's a single centre study from France where they tried to find out what predicted an eventual diagnosis of, of COVID-19 really based on clinical findings, what you would normally do in the ED before you get the results of your PCRs and things back. They took a group of patients who were suspected of having COVID and who were going to be tested. And I think that's fine. That's a group of patients who we're interested in. You know, that's fair enough. And they managed to get 391 patients into the trial, of which 225 turned out to be positive. And they looked at lots of different things. So um, clinical features, they looked at ultrasound, which is one of the things that we're, we're going to talk about, um, chest x-rays and, and things like that. And they also examined what the, I suppose, the gestalt of the, the clinicians was really. What did they think, whether they considered them to be high risk of having COVID, moderate risk or low risk? Now, they didn't actually, as far as I can make out, they didn't sort of predefine what high, medium and low is. Just for fun, I'm just going to ask a... Um, Ellie, what would you say is a low risk for having COVID? You're a clinician, you're in there and you think, oh, this is going to be a low risk patient. What percentage is low risk? So how likely is this patient to, if I consider somebody to be low risk, what kind of risk is that? What sort of percentage risk of them having COVID? Pick a number. 20%. Okay. Charlie? I'd say probably about 10 or 15. My point is that there's a little bit of disagreement, actually. If you look at things like D-dimer testing, of course, um, low risk is a much lower percentage than, than 20%. It's a much less and high risk is 30% in, the, in those sort of well scores. So that basically it's all over the place in terms of that. But it's, it's a subjective sort of gestalt feeling type thing. And I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I'll tell you what the results were in a second um, in terms of what the, res the risk was. They divided them up into high, medium, low and had a look at them. And that's important when we're talking about interpreting diagnostic tests because they didn't just look at the sensitivity and specificity of things. They looked at the likelihood ratios 
And likelihood ratios, if you don't already know, are a tool in diagnostics where you take into account the pretest probability of disease, apply the likelihood ratio, gives you a post-test probability. It's a much better way of doing diagnostics if you can understand it. And there's some interesting findings out there. So from a likelihood ratio point of view, things like the presence of B lines were very strongly associated with um, a diagnosis of COVID-19. So a, a likelihood ratio of 7.58, I think, which is like really high. That's, that's really quite a powerful um, test. And absence of B lines on the ultrasound was a, a likelihood ratio of, I think, 0.26. So again, that's quite, these, are, these are numbers which are quite significant diagnostic changes. There were other things in there. So uh, you could put the combination of the pretest probability, the gestalt of the clinician, plus these factors. So for instance, if you're low risk and you didn't have B lines, if you play around with the local likelihood ratios, you get down to a, a likelihood of 2%, which I think most of us consider a rule out. But their low risk population, when you took them through, was 20%. And their high risk population, this is the clinician's gestalt, was 85%. And when you get to those kind of levels, particularly the high risk, you really have to be careful about how you use your diagnostics because you're starting from such a high level that any test is not going to potentially rule that out as a single test. So interesting stuff in there. Other things to talk about, thinking about sensitivity and specificity, you talked about specific tests. Anosmia had a really high specificity for um, COVID-19, about 97%. It was difficult to find the rule out tests, which were so sensitive there, were no, there was no real test that was so sensitive that it could rule out a diagnosis, and you had to use that in combination with Gestalt. What else can we tell you about it? It's single center. Um, it's a relatively small number of patients. They haven't repeated it. They haven't validated it. They didn't do all the tests in all the patients. So things like ultrasound were only done in the patients who were higher risk in general than the lower risk ones, which may uh, you know, make it appear to perform much better than it normally would. And I think it's very interesting. It fits with what we think. But I'm not sure it's completely definitive yet. I'd like to see these tests taken into different populations and have a look at them in a more structured and robust way, which I think is the aim of some of the studies which are running in the UK, Rick. One of the key things for me from this paper was the high diagnostic accuracy of ultrasound in particular, which perhaps suggests that, you know, that, that's a tool that we should be using a bit more in the emergency department. Would you agree with that? Well, I'm, I'm a big advocate, as you know, and I think all of these patients should get ultrasound in the ED for two reasons. One, I think it can help you make a diagnosis for COVID-19, but more importantly, it can help you make a diagnosis for something which isn't COVID-19, because not everybody's got COVID-19 who's a bit breathless. And I'm really worried about us missing other diseases, such as heart failure, such as pleural effusions, such as PEs. So I, I'm a big advocate of this for diagnosing COVID-19, but also for everything else. And I think that's really important. It looked like the B lines were particularly predictive on this. I mean, we look for the regular plural line, the B, the B lines, there were some other findings that might be suggestive, but the B lines seem to be the most predictive. Yes, and, and if you do this a lot, you'll see that the B lines are interesting. You'll be familiar with B lines from people who are in cardiac failure where you've got them everywhere at the basis, but it tends to be quite patchy. So you see, oh, we've seen this from the, the images and you see it on the chest actually, these patchy elements where you'll see patches of B lines and then a normal space and then more B lines. So it, it's quite, it's relatively easy to differentiate that from cardiac failure and other causes of interstitial syndrome. I'm going to now talk us through a systematic review, which looks at the potential for children to be super spreaders. Now, this is really important for us right now. As emergency physicians, many of us have children, the schools are reopening. And we need to know whether it's safe to send our children back to school. But we see children in our practice. The question is, are children really super spreaders? So I'm going to summarise this and I'm going to come to Ellie for some expert interpretation. So this was a systematic review from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And they looked at a number of different things that might tell us whether children are indeed super spreaders. First of all, with a study in Germany, in Berlin, of over 3,700 patients, where they concluded that children have similar viral loads to adults. And if they have similar viral loads, then the insinuation was that perhaps they're as infective as adults. But the authors actually give a counter opinion on that one. They suggest that actually the log transformation that was used on the viral counts skewed the figures. And that when you look at the raw counts, the children actually had lower viral loads. There were fewer children infected than adults, 3% versus 5.5% in that study. And of course, in Germany, that study only included symptomatic patients, whereas when we're talking about sending children back to schools, we're thinking really more about asymptomatic patients. We do know from other studies that children clear the virus more rapidly 
and they're more often asymptomatic. And that's important because this systematic review also looked at the correlation between the likelihood that you're going to transmit the disease to someone else and the severity of your disease. And if you have more severe COVID disease, then you are more likely to transmit it to somebody else. The insinuation there is that if women are more likely to be asymptomatic, they're perhaps less likely to transmit infection to other people. There was also a look at family clusters. How often are children bringing the virus into their family cluster and then spreading it to all of the family members? There's actually very little evidence of child-to-child or child-to-adult transmission. There was a case report of an eight-month-old baby who developed COVID, but it's possible that that baby actually developed the COVID from the parents and not vice versa because they maybe had a longer incubation period. And there was another report of a nine-year-old who passed it on to their family. But these are limited case reports and a larger study in China failed to show any child-to-adult transmission. In an unpublished preprint, it's been reported that out of 31 family clusters that they looked at, a child was the index case of the first person to get infected in the cluster in only 9.7% of those clusters. So it was a relatively small study, but again, it suggests that uh, children are playing a relatively small role in transmitting across family clusters. And then lastly, we've got real world evidence. So in Australia, we have follow up on instances where children had a proven infection, but they'd been in contact with lots of other people and there were no cases of transmission from those children. And alternatively, there was one more report of a nine-year-old boy who had 112 contacts at school and didn't transmit the virus to anybody. Lastly, in Sweden, I believe the schools haven't shut. And the authors of this systematic review made contact with a lead epidemiologist in Sweden who's confirmed that there have been no reports of outbreaks in Sweden. So the author's message is a reassuring one. They don't think that children are the super spreaders and that we ought to be overly concerned although we have to admit that the quality of data is but it's not really high quality so Ali what did you make of it? Thanks Rick Um, I think that this systematic review reminds us of what we are learning again and again which is that Covid isn't flu and perhaps that's stating the bleeding obvious on one level but but it's still useful to be reminded all of the assumptions we make about viral spread and children in flu are not really being backed up in what we're seeing in children. And um, this has come out recently. There's also an editorial, which I would describe as an unsystematic review. um, And I think it's the Archives of Disease in Childhood, which says exactly the same points as this, presumably all referencing exactly the same paper. I think there are some issues that come from it. As you alluded to the question about whether being asymptomatic, but having tested positive for the disease means that you are a transmitter or not is is a problem in healthcare workers in the general population and in children and we don't have the answer here any more than we have it anywhere else. I think the question that we can't answer as I guess as scientists at all is how small does the risk of a super spreading event in a school have to be before we consider it to be something we are not going to worry about as as a a country, and that's a political decision, really, rather than a a health-based one. Much of this debate really comes back down to that trade-off between politics and healthcare and risk. For me, I think the key thing underpinning all of the discussions about schools going back is that the reason that schools closing helps to control the spread of disease or to have controlled the spread of this disease is not about restricting the number of children going to school. It's about the fact that many people were unable to go to work and have been unable to leave the house as often because they had children to look after. Actually, what closing the schools did was facilitate a wider lockdown. The population's lockdown and schools are hand in hand and you can't really have one without the other. I see a lot of these discussions around schools going back as actually being a proxy for a discussion about lockdown more generally. And a lot of discussions about how you handle interactions at the school gate, which people who want schools to go back talk very enthusiastically about how they'll be enforcing of social distancing at school gates. And I don't know about anyone, if anyone else has got school-aged children, but I'm a little bit sceptical about that behaviour. My take on it from the papers, from the evidence and so on, is I don't think there is super spreading in schools with this particular 
disease. But on the other hand, I think if we focus on that as being the only thing that we are worrying about, then we find an answer that emphasises a particular political direction rather than necessarily giving the reassurance we wanted it to. The problem with with schools closing generally is that that what happens is that the inequalities within our population are widened. So generally speaking, and it's a sweeping generalisation, but that is my job, children who are from very affluent backgrounds uh, with houses with gardens, opportunities for infinite amounts of internet access and, and everything else are able to get on with a homeschooled environment, which while it may not be the same as the school environment, is still quite stimulating. But then there are other children who may be in unsafe or threatening environments where their access to basic necessities like food may be limited, where they are not able, you know, they're not a safe, let alone learning anything. And the potential for that is is huge. And I, I have children and I have to say, I think both of them are being adversely impacted despite having a cushy house with a garden because of the ongoing effects of deprivation of of social contact, of interaction with their peers and of decent structured education because I'm busy doing podcasts instead of looking over their shoulder and making sure they're doing their French homework. It's a very, very complex issue. Uh, And that's why I think in some ways, actually focusing on the super spreader element is, is almost a false flag. I'm going to hand over to Kelly now, who's going to tell us about a relevant study, but also a lot of activity from USEM. Thanks, Rick. The paper that I'll touch on briefly is actually co-authored by one of the other members of our research committee, and it's regarding preparedness and response to p- pediatric COVID-19 in European emergency med- medicine departments. It's a cross-sectional point prevalence survey with 102 centres in 18 countries. They targeted their centres based on population within the countries, not necessarily the infection rate. The data was collected on March 20th and 21st, and the results showed that there was a a lack of a pandemic contingency plan in 34% of their centers, Uh, 36% hadn't done any simulations, striking 62% found shortages in PPE, 83% lack of negative pressure rooms, and uh, unfortunately 25% had COVID-19 infected staff in, within their EDs even. But one thing I would say is in their limitations, they're very clear in that they say their survey does not provide a pan-European perspective. You can see that most of those countries are, are in the West. It is the first European data set that provides a detailed snap, snapshot. And uh, I would applaud them for this. You know, this is a really dynamic challenge that we're facing. And as Ellie has said, it's a it's an endless series of curveballs. And Paul has discussed the confusion matrix. We really need to move our focus at the moment from control and predict studies to studies that can be just a little bit more dynamic. So this work that they're doing is going to be repeat, repeated at a later date. The European Society of Emergency Medicine over the period of the pandemic has had a, sort of a three-pronged approach. One is, um, like yourselves, they've created a series of webinars. Different European countries have shared information about what's going on at at that moment in time, at their phase of the pandemic. With these, we've also tried to generate reports, which try to really kind of go from information to patterns, and then we've tried to move on from there to create data. The next thing that we developed, which is the USM COVID strategy survey. So that is a, a survey um, that compares strategy facing the COVID challenge. So we obviously have a lot of, of um, questions around therapeutic stat- strategies. So we've seen some clear patterns around interventions, um, such as drugs we've discussed earlier here, oxygen delivery. And then we have a lot about intubation. So thresholds for who gets intubated, how people are being intubated, who is doing the intubation, and what methods are they using for intubation. Also, in in terms of therapeutic strategy, we also have to bring in the ceiling of care. So we have some questions around that. There's some patterns around which presenting complaints do initiate the COVID response, but then also in terms of how how patients are being assessed across Europe. So clinical decision tools, where they're using scores. We also have questions around PPE, which we show clear patterns around what the PPE being used in the COVID path, but a lot of variability around what's being used in the non-COVID path. Uh, also, a lot of variability on what's considered aerosol-generating procedures. We also have questions around the morbidity and mortality of health professionals, the discipline, the area that they work in, and also the nursing home deaths. We, we've also received the algorithms from about 10, different, 10 of the different European countries, and we're, we're looking into that in more detail. 
a lot of the emergency medicine physicians uh, said that uh, our local systems were relatively prepared for this crisis. But well more than half have said that the COVID crisis has enabled more people and resources to coordinate better, and there'll be positive improvements that will hopefully last beyond the cut. We are looking for more engagement in this survey. It was to uh, contribute to this survey. It's very welcome. And all equally, uh, if you're interested in participating in the EuroCove study, which is a retrospective multi-center observational study that describes patients with suspected COVID-19 upon ED arrival between March 9th and April 18th. And use this email address, researchnetwork.org. We also welcome participation in this study. Finally, our Congress, which was due to be in September, is moving to a virtual Congress. Hopefully it will also ensure the participation in many of the countries that aren't often represented in the Congress virtually. A real shame that we can't meet in person in Copenhagen this year, but great to hear that it's still going to go on as a virtual conference. And as you say, there's some new opportunities with that. Just to echo what Kelly said about the strategy survey, we'll make sure the link's available on, our, on the blog. Uh, if you can engage with that, that would be really helpful. We need some more responses. Um, and it will be a very important piece of work across Europe. Uh, direct our future strategy. And lastly, to say on that uh, study that you mentioned, Eurocov, we are still looking for an enthusiastic person who's got the time and enthusiasm to, to lead on that in the UK. So anyone who might have that enthusiasm and time, please do get in touch with me and I can direct you. So lastly, to finish off, Charlie, you want to mention the Arkham Top Fives? Yeah, so every week we're um, putting out the top five flash updates uh, where we're skimming through, uh, searching through 1,500 to 2,000 papers. Uh, last week it was uh, led by our very own Anissa, who's just in the webinar here. And next week it's going to be led by Dr. Govind Oliver. But if you see an interesting paper and you think it's worthy of the attention of emergency medicine clinicians around the country, then please submit it to us and we'll try to include as many as possible. So this has been the last in our planned series. We're very interested to know what you think about how we should continue this. It's been a real pleasure to work with everybody who's here today. We really do want to continue doing something, but we'll probably change it a little bit, frequency, the content. Um, so we'd like to get your feedback. Thanks to everybody who's joined. The faculty has been absolutely amazing. I'm really impressed that they've given up their time to be part of this. Thank you to everybody who has also given up your time to join us. I hope you've enjoyed it and we hope to see you soon.